I'm Rabbi Amy. I'm Pastor Ken. I'm Imam Islam. This is Kippa, Kufi, and Color. Today, we're honored to interview best-selling author and Vermont resident, Chris Bajalian. So today is way eight. Stand by others who are suffering, even though they may, even though they brought the suffering upon themselves. Being an ally to someone, even when the someone is at fault. Mm. So, so Whatever let's just, that means. Yeah, let's just take the first three words, stand by others. I think the prof- most profound and most memorable are when um, we, we know that we share some responsibility for whatever it is that we're suffering from. That's hard. So to have somebody who stands by you during that is the most important kind of compassion. I have a memory of uh, of the opposite. Uh, a buddy down the street named Bobby, he and I were friends. And uh, I went to a private school, a, a fundamentalist religious school, and he went to the local public school. And, uh, and we were walking one day, and uh, and this little punk who was about my age was like, I guess we were in fourth grade, maybe. And so this fourth grader and like four or five, six or seventh grade kids were with him. And he wanted to fight me just to fight. He just wanted to have a fight. Just just needed to fight. So he just wanted to fight. And I'm like, you got four or five kids who are significantly big, like they're a lot bigger there's no way I'm fighting you. I'm not fighting you anyway, but there's certainly no way I'm fighting because it doesn't matter what's going to happen. They're going to beat me up if you don't. And my buddy knew him from school. And at one point he said, this guy's a chicken. And he looked at my buddy and he says, are you friends with him? My buddy said, no, I'm not friends with him. Wow. And that was the first time I really realized it's like, oh, people don't always stand by people. Yeah. I remember that. I mean, that was a long time. That was a long time ago. But I remember what it felt like. I remember where I was. I remember I was wearing my favorite Dallas Cowboys jacket. I mean, I remember wow. all those things. Because so did you, were you a friend with him after after that? You know, it never was the same. I would. I would. I wouldn't expect it to be the same. It was never. I wouldn't the talk same. to him if I was you. <laughs> I, I think I talked to him because most of my friends were at school mm-hmm. and 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 when I was in the neighborhood, there were only you know. I think he was one of those kids that you couldn't that was part of the deal, but I knew where he stood, you know? So I think this, I will learn sometimes when I, I there's a saying in, in my culture saying that you get to really know people at the time of distress at the time when that's you need, right. we need them the most. That's where you need to know the fabric of people because yeah. at the time of joy or the time of ease is everyone will be your friend. Yeah. Right. Or when it gets, things gets a little difficult or tough. That's when you really get to know the fabric of people. Mm. That's right. why we should appreciate the, you know, the, sometimes the hardship, um, that we are inflicted with. Sometimes we don't actually appreciate many of, some of us don't appreciate that when, it, when they go through hard times, the hard times actually is like, you know, the, um, uh, like the filter that filters mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. 
uh, all the fake ones and yeah. leaves the good ones with you. That's yeah. The... Yeah. What's Amy, what's been one of your experiences of either somebody standing by you or you finding the right time to stand by somebody? Well, um, I think that many of us have a hard time admitting when we've um, fallen short in our own behavior or done something that has really brought um, pain to either ourselves or to others. Um, So there are many, many stories that are floating around in my mind as I think about this question. But I suppose... um, the one that comes to mind most powerfully for me was uh, in my family, my older brother in high school. Um, he fell in with a bad crowd. He became kind of the leader of the bad crowd. Um, he fell into some really self-destructive behaviors and um, was going to be expelled from high school. Wow. It was really bad. And <clears throat> somehow my father managed to convince the high school to let him work, do a work-study thing, like half a day at the office and half a day at vocational techn- te- Votech school. Yeah. And so he spent half the day at my father's office, so he was supervised. It meant separation from his friends, his social circle. It meant uh, a certain amount of embarrassment and shame for him and um, a lot of loss and it was really really hard and the the role of the of of us in the family was to be present so that he could get on the other side of that and did he he did he did it it um i think for the rest of his life he he died at at 53 from from a heart attack um uh but he so he did not have a chance to fully fulfill himself in life but he did have um he did had a family three kids he did have a a sense of trying to repair and to um make good after that And, and were you, was he your older brother? Or your, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did it feel for you being a younger sister to to be the one to kind of stick up and stand by for him in that? Um, I think it was meaningful. It's a meaningful role to have. Uh, when he had been going through all that rough stuff, he wasn't particularly kind toward me. Yeah. But uh, when when he needed support, that was a much easier place for me to be. Yeah. And, and and I don't want to, if, if I'm stepping on toes, let me know. We'll, we'll cut this off. But, but in, uh, did you ever understand why your brother made the choices he made? That's a long story. Okay. okay. I, I, I mean, yeah, it's understanding is, um, is probably not the right word. Theorizing. Y- yeah. yeah. So, but you stood with him anyway. Yeah. Like that's, uh, you know, sometimes... Standing with, I think, supersedes even even understanding. Yeah, it does. It's just a choice you make. It's a simple choice that I'm going to not um, abandon this person no matter what. That's pretty powerful. 
that's pretty powerful because that's saying that it, it doesn't depend on my intelligence. It doesn't depend on my skill. It doesn't depend on my money. It depends on just my choice. Yeah. And that's those are not easy choices to make in in our relationships that aren't the closest and most uh, fundamental to our lives. Right. It's, it's much easier to say, oh, that's too hard. But that's really where the rubber meets the road in terms of our ability to um, live in a society that has compassion and love. I lived at one point in my life in Minnesota. I was actually working in a, in a, a, a small, tiny convenience store as a, owned by my friend that was helping him out in, um, at night time. Uh, I was doing like uh, I, I was going to school at that time, so you know I was working part time. So the, st- the store was done downtown, and there was a, a homeless person, uh, uh, African American gentleman, homeless, and he, he's always going going around the nightclubs when they come out and then ask people for money. And he's always come to our store, you know, you know, he's like our store was like his um, his station, his resting station. He comes there, he uses a sink, he washes his hand, and and you know. Uh, and then you know sometimes we chat together. So like once you work, he he's like going. You know, so he, he's like you know on his foot for like many hours. Right, right. And he's going very fast. He's going from here to here, and he's going around the neighborhood. Downtown is big. It's a big area. I said once you work, he said I have a broken hip. I said man, you walk more than I do, and I work. Wow. Why don't you just ask instead of asking people for money? Why don't you work? So no, no, I have a medical condition. I have a broken head. I was like, I'm not buying this, but I'm just saying I think you should work because with the same amount of effort that you're doing, you can earn your money instead of asking people for it. And I said, yeah, it's okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to, you know, uh, you know, listen to your advice. And then all of a sudden, he just disappeared. Uh, and then later on, I think the days go by, and then he showed up. It was in the middle of the day, not usually the time that he is hanging around huh. in, in, the, in the night. And then he said, "Hey, I want to thank you very much." And uh, I was also thanking my friend because my friend was, do, was do, you know, he, he knew my, the owner also. So you guys give me good advice. I my life has changed. I, I he applied for some government program, homeless program, and they gave him a, a, an apartment to stay. They gave him an apartment, a shelter, uh, you know, with a very minimal uh, rent, really? and they gave him a job really? Monday to Friday. And he said, "Thank you very much. You guys have always been kind to me. You never, you, you were never arrogant. You were never, you know, talking, looking down on me. And then use your advice. And I have a job from Monday to Friday. I said, I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy that you changed your life like this. And really, I'm really happy. I, did, I was, I always believed that you're not, you shouldn't be doing this. What you were doing. So yeah, thank you very much. I'm now, you know, I have a job now. I have a shelter. I have a house. I mean, I have an apartment. I have a place to stay and everything. And then a few weeks later, I saw him at the same time." <laughs> downtown uh, you know going around the clubs begging for money I was like man what happened to you what happened to you what's going on I said you lose your job I said no I said what's going on what are you doing now I said I work Monday to Friday I only beg on the weekends (laughs) 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 so I I thought that story was going to go about 10 different ways but not that way (laughs) That is hilarious. So, so it's not about this sometimes. It's not, so well, you tell me what to say. I, like, I, I just like just like you now. I just I fell on the floor laughing. But, like, <laughs> <laughs> so everything is hard, fine. That's he's the fine. He's he works. Guy in Minneapolis. He works yeah. and he in Minneapolis. Wow. He works. He has a place to stay. He just he can't stop. He can't help but stay at the house in the weekend. Wow, he has to go. And, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. So so I was struck. Like there's so much in that story. That's a great story. Uh 
you know, I'm struck by the fact that he actually changed his life. Like, I didn't expect that to happen at all. See, he was under the impression that not, it will never can get better. He, he tried to work, and because he's homeless, no one is, no one is giving him a job. And he managed to apply for you know a program, a government, a state program that was there. And he applied, and he got approved, and they gave him a job and a place to stay. But he needed somebody to say, "You can do better. I yes. believe in you that you can do better." And, and he did that. He, he and he came to thank me for that. And you were and that's that. That's really the <laughs> that's most important part of it: is that you demonstrated that you believed in him when you did that. Because he said you didn't look down on me, right? It would be yes, easy yes. to patronize yes, to be yes. like, mm. "What are you doing, you bum? You need to get mm-hmm. a job." But to say, "I know you could get a job. You totally could get a job. Mm. You should get a job." Like that's a that's a, that is being an ally. Yeah. And well, then what well, he does well. with that is hilarious. <laughs> that, that's, that's wild. Yep. If I could just um, redirect us back to our initial question, which, uh, do we not have any more time? Our, our initial question was about being present for and supportive of a person who's done something or is doing some things that are self-destructive or not helpful to themselves that that's our initial question right Mm -hmm. so um i think this comes up as we see people aging or becoming ill and not accepting the kind of lifestyle changes or um outreach that would help them because they are having trouble uh accepting the condition that they are in, oh, whether yeah. it's yeah. a condition of aging or a condition of illness, and, and and it becomes a self-destructive pattern. The car. The car is one really big example of that. That's right. Wow. Right. Or you can't stay in the house anymore because yep. there's nobody to care for you. Yep. Um, what are you doing living on a third-floor walk-up when you can't go up and down the stairs anymore right. and expect people to bring you food and visit you? Like all the ways we see this manifest in people's lives, which is painful for us to observe, and and yet it's important to be present. I think that that's a much more common example in our everyday lives of where where we have to let go of the judgment and try to find a way to be helpful. So I guess it comes down to making that choice about what's more important. Yeah. Is it more important to judge, to be better than? Is it more important to make sure this person gets what they deserve? Is it more important to try to hold this person accountable for a healthier lifestyle? Or is it more important to be present with and for this person, even if I don't like what they're doing? And sometimes it's hard to know which one of those is operative. Yeah. You know, because we do want people to be responsible. Yeah. And and we do want people to help themselves where they're able to help themselves if they would just make the choice to do that. And and yet we don't want to abandon people when they're struggling. It's very that's where it gets really difficult for people. And with that, good luck to everyone out there who's... Okay, let's change the subject. <laughs> Delete that. No, that was great, actually. That was great. 
are really honored today to be talking with author Chris Bajalian, who has published 21 books. Three movies have been based on his books and the HBO Max series that we've been enjoying that is based on The Flight Attendant. Oh, there's much more plays and a book a year. We are just so proud that this is one of our Vermont friends. So, Chris, welcome, welcome, welcome. And today well, thank we're going you for to the, Thank you for that introduction. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. It's a privilege to be with all of you this, this afternoon. Well, we, we, uh, we talked just a little while ago with the three of us about um, different times when we've had folks stand by us, when we've stood by others, uh, particularly when maybe it's, it's a hard thing to do. And I was thinking about, you know, writing is a hard profession to get. Professional writing is, is a hard thing to, to get into. Were there people who really stood by you and showed faith in you uh, when you were starting out? There were. You're talking to a guy who managed to amass 250 rejection slips before I sold a single word. Wow. That's a I, book. That's a, that's a, <laughs> I just graduated from college and I was sending all of these short stories to the New Yorker or the Atlantic or Harper's and being summarily and consistently rejected. And among the people who certainly stood by me was my lovely bride. We were newlyweds at the time. Um, I was commuting to an ad agency in New York City and writing from 5 to 7 a.m. in the morning and Monday and Tuesday nights when I would return home from work. And, you know, when I finally sold a story, when I finally sold a book... And she was always there. And then, you know, and then, and then there were the dark days in Vermont. And when you have dark days in Vermont, given the fact that in the winter, like right now, the sun sets at about one in the afternoon. Right. right. <laughs> the gloaming comes early. And in the early 1990s, I remember one month we sold all of our dining room furniture so I could pay our health insurance. Wow. Another month, we sold all of our living room furniture so we could pay the mortgage. But my wife never, ever lost faith in what we were trying to build. Wow. That's no offense, but why not? <laughs> there were a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, because she's an artist, too. You know, Victoria Bloor is an immensely gifted fine art photographer and so she knows how difficult the arts are and secondly she loved me and she knew this is what I loved just what made me happy and third I think she saw more talent there than editors at the time were seeing wow did you have an editor or another professional coach of some kind who helped you to overcome all of those rejections to finally make it? No. Wow. No. Um, it was, you know, I don't want to say that I felt utterly and completely alone except for Victoria Bloor because I didn't. You know, I had... I had 
great friends then. I have great friends now. Um, but it wasn't as if, you know, there was somebody in the professional world who was reading the work at this point and saying, you are so close. Yeah, I didn't go to the Iowa Writers' Workshop. I, I graduated from college with my student debt and went right to work in an ad agency, um, which was, you know, it was a great, great decision in most ways. My wife and I, um, you know, were able to save the money to buy a place in Brooklyn, mm. sell that place in Brooklyn and buy a place in Vermont. But um, the first person to really give me the sense that it's going to be okay. It was an editor at Penguin Random House named Shea Art, who saw that Water Witches, you know, it sold about five copies, but it gotten great, great reviews, read about 70 pages of a novel about a midwife on trial for manslaughter in Vermont's Northeast Kingdom and said, okay, I want to buy this book, but let's build your career. So let's make it a multi-book deal. And that was 1995. I was 33 years old. And um, that was the first moment when Victoria and I remember, I remember my wife, Victoria, and I raised in class and saying, we're going to be okay. So uh, when you mentioned at the beginning of your uh, professional career life, um, when you had, uh, you know, faced all these rejections and then you found people to stand by you and then that, that beautiful story you just mentioned about, you know, selling those few copies at the beginning. Did that in any way um, uh, um, inspire you to stand by others more than you actually had to? Because, no, I mean, yeah, are, was yeah. that reflected in your writings too or, or just you keep it um, within your close circuit people? Uh, no, those, those, are, those are two great... Great questions. And the first question is, as a writer, um, I've always tried to view writing in the New York Times bestseller list as a really big tent. You know, there's, it's not a zero-sum game. So it is important to me, yes, to do two things. To provide those quotes, those blurbs on books for other writers and to champion other writers' work. So, for example, last month in December, oh my gosh, last two months in November and December, every day on Instagram and Twitter, I was beginning the day by tweeting out, this is one of my favorite books of 2020. Consider it as a holiday gift. Bookstores need us more than ever. And I wouldn't just tag the writer. I would tag a whole bunch of bookstores because bookstores need us so badly. Now, the second part of your question, how is this manifest in my writing? My books are a lot about dread. My books live and die by heartbreak. Mm. I'm the writer who's, you know, always killing off the character when you don't expect, you know, to, to killing Janet Lee in Psycho. That's kind of what I do, whether I'm writing historical fiction, such as Skeletons at the Feast, about one German family's complicity in the Holocaust, or a literary thriller like The Flight Attendant, about 
an alcoholic flight attendant who wakes up after another blackout night with a dead body in her bed. Um, so those books, in terms of trying to, to deal with the idea of paying it forward, approach it a little bit differently. Um, E.M. Forrester once said, we all know that fiction is truer than history because it goes beyond the evidence. Mm. I love that. So I hope that all of my characters are multidimensional and in some cases evil, just, just horrible. But there's a reason for their horribleness. Or even if they're good, they have their demons. I love Cassie Bowden in The Flight Attendant. But she makes one terrible decision after another. Yeah, I was going to bring her up because uh, it's tough for me to to stand by her. Um, it's, you know, one of the things we opened this episode with was the question of standing by someone when their problems are a result in part of their choices. You know, when they've created this turmoil that they wish they need somebody to stand by them through. And she's quintessentially that person. Um, I'm having trouble standing by her as, as we go week to week. And one of the reasons I do, the only reason I do is because you do. Mm. That's really interesting to me. And I hadn't put that together, but, but yeah. I've almost turned it off, but you stand by her. You refuse to give up on her. I mean, imagine a library which isn't filled with characters who make terrible choices and you want to give up on. Imagine no crime and punishment. Imagine no sharp objects. Imagine no the secret history. Imagine no the goldfinch. I mean, so much of literature is about human beings who make bad decisions. And one of the things that I love in the novel, The Flight Attendant, and in the TV series, The Flight Attendant, is the character Ani Maradian, um, who is Cassie Bowden's lawyer and stands with her. And there is a great moment in episode six of The Flight Attendant, and I won't spoil this for those of you who haven't gotten to episode six yet, but there's a great moment when Cassie's best friend really calls her the heck out and makes it clear that you are the most exasperating person on the planet and how much can any one friendship endure? So in so many ways, fiction is real life, right? It's... It's a mirror held up to us. That's I mean, beautiful. Everybody makes bad decisions, some people more than others. But fiction helps us to notice that. And in fact, even in our sacred text, when I think about some of our, our biblical heroes, they are extremely flawed. And yes. sometimes you're just like, oh, my God, how'd you do that? Yeah. And, and it is what they learn and what they do together that creates a new reality. So I was going to ask you about 
examples from your writing, the one you just gave sort of opened that up. Examples of where we can see the possibility of us standing by others. And you've just named one. Uh, do you have others? Sure. You know, John Gardner, great teacher of writing, great short story writer, um, taught in Predlow for years. In the art of fiction, he said, one of the things we want is human transformation. Mm. We want our characters to be different at the end of the book than at the beginning. We want to go on a, a journey with them. And when I think of, of my books, the characters that I think about most are those who are the most transformed, not transformative, right. but those who've been transformed in some cases by others. Emily Shepard, mm -hmm. close your eyes, hold hands, and a teenage girl trying to keep it together after a meltdown at Vermont's lone nuclear plant is a homeless kid in Burlington popping Oxycontins like M&Ms and she's a cutter. And at the end of the book, how is she? I mean, I'm going to reveal it, but her transformation was important to me and the people who were there for her and those who weren't are what interested me in the sandcastle girls a novel about the armenian genocide who were the um ottoman citizens and the americans who stood with the armenians who was they who were there to help them and then of course who were there and allowed it to happen or were actively involved in it happening. The book is filled with characters who are both. So for example, one of my favorite characters in the Sandcastle Girls is the Turkish scholar. Um, I'm sorry, is, is, I'm sorry, is the Turkish physician um, who's named after the great Turkish scholar of the Armenian genocide, Taner Akçem. So Taner Bey you know, a physician in the Sandcastle Girls is one of those righteous human beings who, in Aleppo, in the Ottoman Empire in 1915, is ministering to the orphaned Armenian children. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm struck by something you said a minute ago uh, about walking with people as they are transformed and seeking that transformation. And I hate to tell you this, but like you're sort of a pastor to your characters yeah. because that's, you know, at the end of it, that's what I want somebody to be able to say about the ministry that God's given me is that somehow in that so somebody walked with me while God did this thing to me, while God transformed me, while yeah. the events around me, moved me to a, a, a more holy, wholesome healing place. One of the things that I love about what I do is that I never know where my books are going. Mm. I depend on my characters to take me by the hand 
and lead me through the dark of the story. Um, so in some ways, they are actually pastoring to me. Mm. Mm. So there, there's another take on the concept of standing by in the way that you've just described that. That's really fascinating and very you know, One of the other realities of my work is how weirdly therapeutic it is for me. I mean, there is so much autobiography in all my characters, in all my books. Often my characters' demons are, are my demons. Often my characters' fears are my fears. Well, with a book a year, that's a lot of demons and fears. Oh, I'm a mess. Or we could say that perhaps you're healthier than all of us because you're working it out constantly. And most oh. of us aren't. <laughs> no, I'm not. I am the least mindful human being in any of your parish parishes, congregations, and temples. There's no one less mindful than me in the state of Vermont. <laughs> I want to pass it to my friend Islam for, for another question. I was just gonna talk, speaking of, about the characters. Um, has any of your characters, any of your characters, have they ever inspired you to something that you have, um, you know, you have invented, something that you have written about, and that actually inspired you in real life? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a great question because so many of the subjects that I end up writing become passions. Um, yep. Literal, literally, so for example, when I started writing the Sandcastle Girls about the Armenian Genocide, I knew this was going to be an educational novel for Americans who couldn't find Aleppo, much less Armenia, on a map. But I had no idea that over the next eight years, I would be traveling to... Um, historic Armenia or Eastern Turkey five times, or that Armenia itself would become a, a principal philanthropic and activist part of my life. Um, or when I was writing about human trafficking for the guest room, I had no idea that um, I would suddenly find myself speaking on behalf of um, anti-trafficking organizations and um, using the bully pulpit of the novel The Guest Room to educate people to the way um, um, young adults are, are trafficked. So um, we, of course, note your deep connection to your Armenian heritage. And we are wondering who has gifted you with that connection and how that came to life in your, um, in your, in, in your life's journey for you. Two human beings. My incredible Aunt Rosemary um, Nevart, who like my father, I was a child of two survivors of the Armenian Genocide and was willing to speak about what her parents had told her a lot 
Um, though it's amazing because of how little my grandparents were willing to share. And my great friend, Hachik Moradian, who um, you know, grew up in Beirut and now teaches at Columbia, and who I view as sort of a moral compass and, and godfather, even though, you know, I must have 15 years on him, um, who taught me so much about not just the Armenian genocide, but how to approach it as a human being. For example, Hodgig is the one who, you know, always reminds me and so many other Armenian Americans to say, no, you don't hate Turkish people. You hate the Turkish government's denying of the Armenian genocide. You hate the Turkish government's policy toward Armenia. Well, I, I, I am uh, overwhelmed with gratitude for your spending your time with us and, and sharing your thoughts with us, Chris. You're uh, a real gift today. Uh, and uh, in a season that is uh, um, where gifts are all the more precious. Well, so. I thank the three of you so much. And I know how difficult your work was in 2020. Oh my gosh, I get it. And just think, it's 2021 really and truly and vaccines are being distributed and pretty soon 2020 and all of that horror will be in the rearview mirror. We got this. We, we got, got this. We got it. <laughs> that is a religious message if I ever heard one. Amen. Amen. So, so, so we got one question to close out with real quick, and that is, what is your favorite Ben and Jerry's flavor? Chubby hubby. There we go. <laughs> that didn't take long at all. <laughs> Such a pleasure to get to talk with you. Thank we you We hope so we much. get to have some ice cream with you sometime next year.